I want to ask you a question today. Do you know why you were born? Do you have any idea? Do you ever reflect on that? Do you ever think about that? Today we're going to talk about that topic. Lord, why was I born? Why did you allow me to come into conception and be born? You know, uh, I don't know about you, but uh, the only race I've ever won was when I was born. I, built, I beat billions of other competitors from my birth. And that's the last time I ever ran for anything. But do you know why you were born? That's what I want to talk to you about this morning. If you're worshiping with us for the very first time, thank you so very much for being with us. There's a card in the seat in front of you. Take a moment, fill that in, and drop it in the beautiful orange buckets on your way out. And we'll send you a note thanking you for being here. I want to say a special happy birthday to Nancy uh, Nix out in Nevada at the golf course. Uh, wish you were here with us. And then Scott Gillis is turning 100 years old today. Not really, but he, he looks it, honest, he's, he looks it. He's not quite that old, he's about 30. Turn with you in your Bibles, please, to the book of Genesis. Genesis chapter 37. We're going to be here for just a little while, and I hope it will be a real blessing to you as we walk through it. Genesis chapter 37, verse 1 is where we'll start in a second. We're going to look at the profile of a character in the Bible by the name of Joseph. Did you know that Joseph is the only person listed in the Bible that there's not one negative statement said about him? You don't ever find him complaining. There's never that humanness in him that seemingly each of us have. But his storyline parallels ours so much, I think we benefit by taking time to look in the life of a man named Joseph. Genesis chapter 37. Are you there? Say amen. Let's begin reading together at verse 1. It says, now Jacob dwelt, and leave your Bible open during the message if you would. Jacob dwelt in the land where his father was a stranger in the land of Canaan. This is the history of Jacob. Now Joseph, being 17 years old, was feeding the flock with his brothers. And the lad was with the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to his father. Now Israel loved Joseph more than all his children because he was the son of his old age. Also, he made him a tunic or a coat of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peaceably to him. Now, I would like to take just a moment today as we look at that scripture and get you to reflect with me on what in your mind will be the ideal of a perfect family. Not a perfect family, there are none, but an ideal family. Back when I was a kid growing up, we thought of the ideal family as someone living in a Cape Cod home with a white picket fence, a collie dog, two kids, and they drove a Buick station wagon. It was best personified in the show, maybe Leave it to Beaver. Warden June Cleaver, she always came down to breakfast wearing that pearl necklace and the dress and the apron. And I was telling that to a man who just got married, and he said, what's breakfast? You know, the world of difference in the last two or three generations going forward. But one person suggested an ideal family like this. Well, you grow up in a home that has never known what the word divorce means. And you marry someone who has grown up in a home who has never known what the word divorce means. You both get married after you graduate from college, and you get married young, but not too young, whatever that is supposed to mean. And then you both get really good jobs, and you start out in great careers just after the right amount of time, whatever that is. 
The wife gets pregnant. A baby comes. The wife leaves her job and puts her career on hold, but that's okay. She's going to care for the kids. It's no problem. Her husband makes enough money to cover all the bills, and they're in good shape. And then you have somewhere between three and five kids, whatever the ideal number is. And then the kids grow up all healthy. They have no cavities. Orthodontist is a word that never enters the vocabulary of this ideal family. They go to great schools. They have a loving mom and dad. And all the kids love each other. Mm, honey, baby sugar. Uh, just wonderful growing up together in this wonderful house. You have no school drama. You have no boyfriend-girlfriend drama. You have no medical drama. You have no uh, legal drama. You have no drama drama. <laughs> the, the, the kids go to these universities, and then they find great wives and husbands, and they get married, and then they bring wonderful grandkids to mom and dad, and then you retire and live. You've got it. Now, I'm not even going to ask the question this morning. You can raise your hand if you want to, but don't bother, because honestly, there ain't none of you all in this room. <laughs> there may be one or two, possibly. I haven't met you yet. And I will tell you, this is the ideal that we should go for. We want to have good family. Say amen. We want to have great kids. We want to go through things. But the truth of the matter is the reason we keep taking these marriage classes is because we don't quite get it. I still don't understand why Deborah's upset with underwear on the floor. And we just celebrated our 50th wedding anniversary. And, and some things, guys are just slow. Catch, catch, oh, yeah. Were you clapping for the underwear or the wedding anniversary? See I saw guys clapping first, and I thought, amen, go. And I saw the way I said, oh, yeah, it's the anniversary. Yeah, of course. But, 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 but sometimes, you know, we don't get it. That's why we keep taking these marriage classes. We don't get the parenting thing right. That's why this coming Saturday, one of the most incredible parenting classes you'll ever have an opportunity to go. If you have kids still at home, you'll want to be here this coming Saturday here at the church. And that's why we still listen to Dave Ramsey's Financial Peace University because we're still trying to get the budget right and get everything good that way. The truth of the matter is all families, don't let it out of this room, all families have been messed up since the first two parents on earth and the first two kids showed up and one killed the other. And it's been that way generation after generation after generation after generation after generation through all of it. The truth is we've all been affected by sin and by the fall of mankind. And that has affected human weakness on every level you can imagine. Not just internally and spiritually, but the way we live our lives and what we strive for. And it's important... Because it doesn't mean that the ideal is not important or it doesn't mean that it's meaningless. And it doesn't mean that it shouldn't be promoted. And it doesn't mean that we shouldn't strive for better marriages and better families and better us in every way that we possibly can. It just shows that how many of us, most of us, are outside of whatever ideal TV or magazine would put forth as an ideal family. And today we're looking at a young man by the name of Joseph. He's a, a whole lot like people in this church. Uh, the young Grant Conklin is the same age. Grant's in service, I believe, this morning, uh, or will be in the second. He, he just won his playoff game at Big Walnut this week. He's 17 years old. And Grant is a stud muffin. He's got arms as big as your legs. He's an incredible guy. 
And Joseph is about Grant's age. He's 17 years old in this story. And the story of Joseph takes up more ink space and geography in the book of Genesis than any other family, more than Abraham, more than Isaac, more than Noah, more than all of the predecessors before him from Genesis chapter 37 to Genesis chapter 50, 13 chapters, we see the life of Joseph and his family. Now, Joseph's family is very different. Joseph's father, Jacob, tried to trick his father into giving him all the family fortune instead of letting his brother Esau, who was the oldest and was supposed to have it. You ever heard of anyone in a family trying to trick other family members out of their inheritance or things like that? And the scheme fell apart. And Joseph's father, Jacob, had to run for his life when his twin brother said, here's how I'm going to handle it. I'm going to murder you. I'm not going to forgive you. You're dead, brother. I'm just going to find you, take you out, and it's going to be over. Joseph believed him. The Bible says that he ran about 200 miles away and was so afraid of his brother Esau, he didn't go back home. And in that years that he was running from his brother, his mom and dad died, and he never got to see them again. 20 years without communication with your family. Can you imagine such a thing? It was a very difficult relationship. Well, Jacob found a place to live with his mother's uh, brother, his uncle, by the name of Laban. But Laban took advantage of Jacob and actually treated him like a slave. And Jacob married not only one of his cousins, but two of his cousins, because the father cheated him on the first cousin, said, you marry this one that no one wants, and then I'll give you the one you want after you work for 14 more years in order to get it. And then he added two more wives who were the servant girls of his cousins. And between them all, Jacob ends up with 12 kids among four different women. And there was constant competition and strife and conflict among the children and the mothers and the different family members. It was a great, big, messed up, dysfunctional family. But I will tell you what it brought forth. It brought forth one kid by the name of Joseph. Maybe that is who you are this morning. You're that one kid. You're that one person. And you've had it rough. If we were to stand up here and tell all of the dysfunction in our families, in our background, in our past, you would say, how could God use me? And then God would say, I want you to ask yourself a question introspectively. Do you know why you were born? You know this saying that God has a tremendous plan for our lives. I believe that with all of my heart. I believe that regardless of your age, if you are still alive and breathing and have a sound mind, and that's questionable for a few of us, but I believe that God has a purpose and God has a plan for our lives. And so for us to look on the inside and to seek God and say, God, what do you have for my life? Notice in verse 2 of Genesis chapter 37, it says, this is the history of Jacob, Joseph being 17 years old. That's his son. Now, when you see the word Jacob there, in the next verse it says Israel, they are interchangeable. That's the name that God gave Jacob. Jacob is Israel, and Israel is Jacob. And with that brief introduction, we're introduced to Joseph. Joseph is, without a doubt, one of the most remarkable characters in all of the Bible. All you men that want to do Bible studies on great men of faith, Joseph would be a good place to start. And you could park it there for weeks and months and answer some of the questions that we'll be looking at in this series. Today, we start with the question, do you know why you were born? Joseph gives us an example to something we can strive for, just like we want to strive for good marriages and good finances and good parenting. 
Dr. James Montgomery Boyce, who is an incredible scholar and was for many years pastor of 10th Avenue Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia, wrote this about Joseph. He said, he was chosen and rejected. He was loved and hated. He was favored and abused. He was betrayed and rescued. He was promoted and imprisoned. He was tested and rewarded. He was slandered and praised. Yet at no point in the almost 110 years of his life did he ever take his eyes off the Lord. Adversity didn't harden his character. Prosperity didn't ruin him. You know, prosperity can ruin people. Uh, We're playing a lottery for $1 billion. Tithe, brother, tithe. (laughs) He was the same in private as he was in public. Temptation didn't destroy him. Imprisonment didn't embitter him. Promotion didn't change him. He was truly a great man. And you could put it like this. If you were to take all of the previous characters in the book of Genesis up to Joseph and compare them, you could start out with Enoch, and you could say Enoch shows us the walk of faith. Noah shows us the perseverance of faith. Abraham shows us the obedience of faith. Isaac showed us the power of faith. But you could honestly say that Joseph shows us the triumph of faith. That once we're consistent with God and look to him, the triumph that's there. Joseph never complained. He never compromised. And God did a mighty work in him and through him. You might want to jot this down somewhere. God will never do a great work through you until he does a great work in you. He will always start on the inside and go out from there. And best of all, do you know this? That Joseph is an eloquent example of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. There are over 50 scholars, tell me, over 50 different characteristics of Joseph that parallel the life of Jesus Christ and make him a representation. But all that being said, let's look look at the messed up family life that Joseph had and he grew up in. Notice again in verse 3 with me, if you would, please. It says... And it should be on the screen. Now, Israel loved Joseph more than all his children. Now, isn't that a recipe for family harmony at Thanksgiving? <laughs> Joseph, uh, Israel loved Joseph more than all of his children. Out of 13, you pick one as favorite. That's very dangerous. The Sears family is here today in this service, and they have 13 children. And all of their children are wonderful. But could you imagine the fight that would start if they would pick just one of those? That would be the the Hardwick family. They have about 112 children. And they're here today, fine young men. And what would it be like if they would just pick one of those as the favorite? Let me show you how favored Joseph was. In that same verse, verse 3, it says, He made him a tunic or a coat of many collars. Now the favoritism of the father was plain for everyone to see. Everyone's wearing J.C. Penney. They're wearing Walmarté. And, and here comes uh, Joseph in a Hart Schaffner Mark suit. This kid is wearing the most expensive thing that you can get. And not only is it expensive, did it really have to be a coat of many colors? I mean, really, are you just showing off? At this point, uh, Jacob, to do that for your son, the Christian Bible talks about not only was it a coat of many collars, but according to many uh, commentators and Bible translations, it was a coat made of long sleeves. The Bible's in your seat in front of you, the Christian Standard Bible, and it doesn't say a coat of many collars. It says a coat of long sleeves. 
And that's a very important phrase. And in the original Hebrew, I understand, that's a more exact translation than just being a coat of many colors. Because it brought with it dignity and honor, and watch this, and preferential treatment. Because when you wear a coat with long sleeves, a tunic with long sleeves, it represented you have no intention to do any work that day. It's like the suit you would wear to church on Sunday morning. The men who would go work in the tunics, they were sleeveless. They were manly men. And they would go out and they would agriculturally dig in the garden. And they would put the hay up and do whatever they had to do. But you can't do that with long sleeves. You guys even know that when you, 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 if you're wearing even a jacket but a suit coat and you need to do something, the first thing you do is take that jacket off because you have to be able to reach around and you have to be able to get it and move forward. But in that culture, it'd be like wearing a nice suit and trying to go out to work and it just wouldn't help it ha- happen. You, if you had a coat with long sleeves, you'd be the office guy leaning with a cup of coffee looking out the window watching everyone else do the work. And that's probably exactly what Joseph did because daddy told him, you know, you're special and everyone else is doing the work and you know that doesn't set too well. You can imagine the love going on in that family among those brothers. It wasn't good. The truth is they were broken and we're all broken. Some of us know it and some of us don't know it. And a couple of the best days of your life will be when you realize the difference between the two. When you honestly realize that we all fall short of the glory of God, that's why we need Jesus. Is there an amen in the house? But then humanly, there's some brokenness. And so what I want to say to you as I continue today, if, if, if you can relate, this story is for you. If you come from a broken home, this story is for you. If you don't get along with your brothers and sisters, this story is for you. If, if you, if you uh, were abused when you were growing up, this story is for you. If your friends lied to you, this story is for you. If you've done jail time, this story is for you. If your family just doesn't understand you, this story is for you. So how did God's will unfold for Joseph? At the beginning of Genesis chapter 37, Joseph is tending the flocks with his brothers in Canaan. But if you haven't read it yet, by the end of the chapter, he ends up being a slave down in Egypt. And his life's taken what appears to be a massive turn in the wrong direction. But what I want you to know about Joseph and what I want you to know about you is that God doesn't forget you in the side trails and the detours and the ditches and the dead ends and the dry holes of your life. God is aware of all those things happen. I mean, how does a 17-year-old Hebrew boy become the prime minister of Egypt? Here are a few steps that he went through. And on the back of your worship guide, if you'd like to just jot them down, I'll do them very quickly that you can see them on the screen and I'll share them with you. Joseph started out like the rest of his family. He worked in the family business. It was a farm. And those of you that grew up agriculturally, Bob Burke, I'm looking at you back here. And I know that the farm life, it takes the whole family to get involved in that thing. It says in verse 2, Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. So he worked with the family business. The second thing I want you to jot down is that he stood for different values than his brothers did. This is an interesting statement in verse 2 of chapter 37 because it still calls Joseph a lad. One translation calls him a boy. Another one calls him a young man. But it says he was a lad with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. 
Now, undoubtedly, Joseph knew that his brothers were people of low character, and they were doing something that would possibly hurt the family and hurt the business and hurt the farm. And he brings that to them, and he brings the report to the father of what he saw and what he heard. And you know that went over like Christmas Day. Number three, if you'll jot it down, he was marked out as being special at an early age. I hope you'll accept humbly what I mean because I know how worthless I really am humanly. But when I grew up on the farm, you always hear me bragging on my Aunt Gladys that raised me on the farm. In fact, I was there yesterday in Tazewell, Virginia. And I uh, went by the farm. And, and I'll never forget my brother came to live with us at one point. He was a year older than me. And, and my Aunt Gladys, who could never do anything wrong, even then as an 11-year-old and I was a 10-year-old boy, I realized what she said she shouldn't have said. She looked at my brother when he messed up. He was laser and dirt, I'll tell you that right now. But I loved him. She looked at him and just said, Graddy, why can't you be more like Frankie? And I thought, even as a 10-year-old, ain't Gladys, didn't you learn anything all the years you taught school? You shouldn't be doing that. You shouldn't be saying that. It's never fair to compare. Is there an Amen. And, and what happened right here is that they're comparing. Number three, I want you to write it down. He was marked out as special at an early age. Starts out early. In verse three, it says, Now Israel loved Joseph more than all of his children. How can you say that? Because he was the son of his old age, and he made him a robe of many collars. And this is the part of the story that almost everyone knows. Joseph's coat of many collars. They've made uh, Broadway shows about it. And we can debate among ourselves about the wisdom of Jacob showing him that favoritism. But the Bible doesn't characterize it as sin. It is not common sense, probably not good. And maybe he should have made his feelings so obvious. But by wearing that robe, Joseph undoubtedly signaled to his brother that my dog's bigger than your dog. My preferential treatment's better than yours. Something, a lot of animosity. Number four, this is interesting. Joseph had two strange dreams. Did you ever dream anything? Some people tell me they almost never dream, and yet researchers say we dream all the time. There have been times I heard about one lady that was in the middle of a dream. Her husband woke her up, and she said, leave me alone. I want to go back to sleep and finish the dream. must have been a really great dream. But in verses 5 through 8, his first dream, he and his brothers were get, gathering uh, bundles of wheat in the field. And when his bundle stood up, the other bundles bowed down to him. He's the chief bundler <laughs> at that point. And it's not too hard to figure that one out. And when he told his brothers about the dream, needless to say, they weren't too happy about it. The second dream was a little more grandiose. Notice with me in verse 9 on the screen. It says, then he dreamed another dream and told it to his brothers and said, Behold, I have dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, and 11 stars were bowing down to me. And he, the Bible says in verse 10, he told this to his father and his brothers. And verse 11, it says, that at first his father rebuked him and, and later pondered what it meant. He even asked him, are you saying I'm the sun, your mother's the moon, and all your brothers that were all going to bow down before you? And he just was thinking, what were you thinking? But then in verse 11, he pondered it in his heart. The next thing I want you to jot down is understanding that caused his brothers to hate him more and more. Now, notice how things just go downward in a spiral. The text mentions it four times. Just look quickly in your Bible. In verse 4, it says his brothers hated him. In verse 5, they hated him even more. In verse 8, they hated him even more. 
in verse 11, his brothers were jealous of him. And it's no wonder what verse 4 says, that they couldn't speak kindly of him. And soon their anger and envy will lead to a shocking betrayal. You see, the truth of the matter is, envy will rot the bones inside of you. When you get that green-eyed monster of jealousy, that envy that can crop up, you, you know, you just think, well, why do they have that and I don't have this? Why do they get the treatment that I don't get? The account is both sad, but it's also instructive on how we should live our lives looking for God's will in our life. Often, the people closest to you will not recognize God's call on your life. They will not recognize what the Lord's trying to do in your life. And, and many a young person has had to fight through family opposition in order to serve Jesus Christ. Parents will tell teenagers when they come to Christ, we're not a Christian family, we don't go there. And guys, let me tell you why we do big events with our children and our teenagers. I'm glad you asked me why. Did you know that 94% now of all people that come to Christ, the most recent statistics, do so before their 18th birthday, and only 6% of the population get saved after age 20? And so if we have an opportunity to influence and train up a child in the way they should go, it needs to be during those formative years. And in, in this situation with Joseph, he's growing up in this environment, and it, there's a lot of family opposition that's there. And for you, there may be opposition, even in your marriage, even in your family. And the fact that you're here today and serving Christ and learning and growing in Him, God bless your heart. Don't expect everyone to be excited because you're excited in Jesus Christ. The world doesn't understand. When I was in Virginia yesterday, I met a family that's a, was a scientist guy in nuclear energy. And they said, oh, we thought Baptists were only in the South. They have Baptists in Ohio? I said, well, better than that, we have Christians in Ohio. You know, can you believe that? And so I was able to share Jesus with them for a moment. But not everyone will applaud that. And in Joseph's case, his brothers are about to commit a terrible crime. They're going to conspire, literally, to kill their own flesh and blood. They're going to kill their family, all because of envy. You say, no one could ever do that. Well, listen to what Hebrew, I'm sorry, Hebrews 12, 15 says. The writer to Hebrews says, See to it that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble in your life. And that's precisely what happens here. Centuries later, Solomon would write these words in Proverbs 14. Notice, a tranquil heart gives life to the flesh, but envy makes the bones rot. And these words, sadly, are about to come true. Envy will not only cause trouble, it will nearly destroy the entire family. The next thing I want you to write down about Joseph on your outline is that his brothers betrayed him. Now, the events unfold very swiftly at this point. In verse 18, the brothers conspire to kill him. Follow along in your Bible. In verse 19, when they see him coming, they mockingly say, here comes this dreamer. That's how they saw him. This, he's this wild dream of something. Uh, in verse 20, they plan to kill him and throw him in one of the nearby pits. Hey, there's an empty cistern over here. And when you think of a cistern, don't think that it's an open trench on the side of the road. Don't think that it's just a hole that he could easily cr crawl out of. These cisterns were designed to hold vast amounts of water, and they were sprinkled all over that desert area because water was so scarce, and it was almost like a bottle closed off top and a huge cavern where it is almost impossible to ever scale the walls and get out on the other side and come up from the top again. 
and they're going to throw him in these pits. In verse 24, they end up throwing him alive into an empty pit. Then comes the most callous act of all, I think. <laughs> they hate him. They throw him in a pit. And in verse 25, it says, and they sat down and had a meal. They're sitting down. They're hearing their brother scream, help me, help me. Somebody help me. Someone says, hey, do you got any more falafels? Give me some hummus. And they're laughing about their brother being down in that hole at that point in time. What sort of men do this? But then along come some traitors. Those of you that are scholars in Scripture, you know this point in the Bible, that some traitors come along and they say, wait a minute, we can make some money off of him. Notice what it says in verse 27. It's on the screen. What profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites, and let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother, our own flesh. So the deal was done. And they sold Joseph for 20 pieces of silver. That was the price that was paid for a slave. And it's uh, uh, pre-telling what would happen in the New Testament when someone else sold someone for 30 pieces of silver that Judas Iscariot did. But only one detail remains. What will they say to their father when they get home? Dad had sent Joseph out to check on them. Now that he's not coming back with them, what are we going to tell dad? You know what they did. They took that coat. They took that robe of many collars and they dipped it in blood, in the goat's blood. And they told their father, Dad, you're not going to believe this, but a wild animal killed Joseph out in the desert. It was a bald-faced lie. Jacob believed it, of course. I mean, what else could he do? This is the only remains. He's an older man. He can't go out and check himself. And as a result, the last thing I want you to jot down on the back in this timeline in Joseph's life is that he ended up being a slave down in Egypt. Verse 28 tells us what happened next. They took Joseph to Egypt. At this point, don't think of the children of Israel being in Egypt. They were still in Canaan. They were still hoping for prosperity and being there. But what a sordid story this is. What a total mess up it is. Where is God in this? Do you know the only thing you can't find mentioned in Genesis chapter 37 is God? He's not there. You can't find God anywhere in Genesis chapter 37. His name is nowhere to be found. And so what should we conclude from all of this? Does this mean that he's abandoned Joseph to his brother's evil schemes, that God just gave up on the situation? Not at all. Joseph ends up exactly where God wanted him to be all along. He could have just bought him a trailways bus ticket and saved all this trouble. But Joseph ends up exactly where God wants him. Exactly. I mean, through everything, though it's spinning out of control at every point, Joseph is exactly where the Lord wanted him to be. He wanted him in the field with his brothers. He wanted the reporting to his father. He wanted the telling of dreams. He wanted looking for his brothers. He knew he was going to be thrown in a pit, sold as a slave, and marched off to Egypt. And while this chain of events must have seemed very dark to Joseph, very chaotic in his mind of everything that was going on. It was all leading exactly where God intended it to go from the very beginning. And today is an introduction to this series that I want to share with you in the weeks ahead. There are two things that I want us to think about. Number one, anytime God raises someone up, raises a leader up or raises you up, he often allows enemies to be raised up to put you to the test. 
There will be those. I remember when Deborah and I made a real commitment to follow the Lord, and, and I had a sister-in-law that said to me when we did that, she said, oh, yeah, you're doing that God thing. She said, I did. It'll go away in a couple weeks. I'm here to tell you it hasn't gone away in six decades, and I'm so grateful for that. That's why I love the Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, if you think about it, where did Joseph's worst enemies come from? They came from his family, just the bedroom down the hall, at the dining table, downstairs in the tent, his own flesh and blood. What started as hatred, it, it really put itself together, congealed in envy. And it resulted in conspiracy we're going to get rid of him, which led to violence. And that was compounded by a callous indifference. Joseph's gone. Long live the rest of the brothers. They didn't care. And it ended in a shocking betrayal, which was covered with evil deception. Jesus warned us that this is the way it would happen. In Matthew 10, he said, a man's enemies will be those of his own household. And Joseph was seeing that in spades. And so we shouldn't be surprised when, when people we thought we could trust turn against us. Don't nod your head or even blink your eye. But if you had a relationship that you thought would always be that relationship and then it broke off and there's no communication, maybe the marriage ended, maybe the business ended, maybe the friendship went away, and you just still to this day don't understand what happened in the midst of all of that. It doesn't always happen. But when it happens, many times the results are devastating. And then the second thing that I want you to think about this morning is that even though there may be enemies, when God has a plan for your life, even your enemies can't stop you. When God wants something accomplished, when God wants to use you in particular. You remember when I preached on Jonah about 100 days ago? And I said that Jonah, God may have been more interested in Jonah getting right than Nineveh getting right. Because God could very easily have just thrown Jonah aside, but he kept working with him. And in this situation, God's very concerned about Joseph and what he wanted him to do. That's the other side of the story. Nothing the brothers could do could cancel God's choice of Joseph. Behind Jacob's favoritism and behind those strange dreams, and incidentally, dreams are wonderful things, but please don't guide your life by the dreams you have at night. It really could be. It's proven that you may have had Giammarco's pizza with anchovies the night before. And you've confused God with gas. And you need to, you say, well, I need to hear from the Lord. Well, he speaks to you all the time through his book. It is the number one way that God will speak to you as you're going through difficult things. But behind those strange dreams and behind the brother's evil schemes stood the God of the universe working his will. You know, it's like, do you ever see that show Saturday Night Live? I know you didn't. You're Christians. <laughs> but years ago, there was an actor on it named Chevy Chase. And he used to say, I'm Chevy Chase and you're not. And God would say, I'm God, and you're not. Even in the midst of everything that we go through, he's God. He's there. He's the God of the universe working his will. He stood behind it. And not even the treachery of envious brothers could thwart God's plan. Do you know why you were born? I contend that Joseph didn't. I contend that it was probably in Genesis chapter 50, verse 20, when it came together and it became no exaggeration to him, when Joseph looked at his brothers that we'll talk about in the future when they were reunited, and he looked at him and said, you meant it for evil against me. And that's no exaggeration. They first meant to kill him and only spared his life because they saw a way to make money on his disappearance. It was evil through and through. Didn't God know about the betrayal? You bet he did. Didn't God know about the slavery? Didn't God know about Potiphar's wife? Didn't God know about the false accusations? 
Didn't God know about the prison time? I didn't deserve to go to prison. Why did I have to do this for two years? God knows all that and a whole lot more. Therefore, it was God. This may be the important thing I'm going to say today, most important thing, so wake up. It was God who led Joseph through the pain of betrayal. It was God who allowed it to happen that way. At the beginning of chapter 37, Joseph is tending the flocks with his brothers who already hate him. At the end of chapter 37, he's a slave in Egypt. Is he better off at the end or worse off at the end? Here's the answer. It depends on your point of view. It's not how big is your circumstance, but how big is your God? Mark Twain one time said, There are two great days in every person's life. The day we were born and the day we discover why. One is easier than the other. You know your birth date. We celebrate that every single year. The other date isn't as easy. That is the moment that you figure out why God has you here. And some people have lived many years without understanding the point of their life. We understand the point of life, but we don't understand the point of our lives many times. And it's, it's the reason that you joined almost 8 billion other people on this planet of gas spinning so fast you wouldn't believe it. Is that during the time that we're here, God has a point for your life, a reason for your existence, and what he wants you to do. The first day explains your existence on the earth. The second explains your purpose for it. And it often takes a lot longer to discover why. It took Joseph a long time to get it, but eventually he discovered why he was born. He's not there yet at the beginning of chapter 37, but he will be. Honest question. Do you know why you were born? Now, maybe the right answer is this. I was born to serve the Lord, and everything else is just details. And that would be the right answer. I was born to serve the Lord, and everything else that happens in my life is just details. And if that's true, the real hero in, the, in Genesis 37 is not Joseph, it's God. It, it illustrates for us how God accomplishes his purposes and, and does everything he wants to do, things that we're clueless about in the big picture. And that comforts me because, honestly, I rarely see the big picture. My buddy, Jim Custer, over at Grace told me one time many years ago, he said, Frank, you know what I love about you? I said, well, there are many things. Choose one. <laughs> he said, you really embrace every day, a day at a time, don't you? I said, I do, because I don't know if I have a guarantee of tomorrow. This is, this is the time. Now, I'm convinced there's a blueprint, but I'm pretty convinced that God hasn't told you what your blueprint is for tomorrow. You can have all the plans you want to have, you can write down everything you want to write down, but only God decides those things. And so we look to him knowing that he's in control of all of these things. Uh, we don't have access to what he wants to happen. Who was the number one guy that wrote a book on understanding the point of life in America in the last generation? His name was Rick Warren. You know that name. His book, The Purpose Driven Life, has sold millions upon millions upon millions upon millions of copies. And Rick Warren understood that one of his purposes of life is that he was going to give all that money back to the kingdom of God. And he started something called reverse tithing, where all the millions upon millions of dollars he made, he tithed 90% and lived on 10%. And for him, that was the great point. But on April the 5th, 2013... Perhaps the worst day in Rick Warren's life. 
happen without him being able to understand it, and it came out of nowhere. It was that morning that he and his wife Kay sensed that something was tremendously not quite right. Their 27-year-old son Matthew had been suffering from mental illness since he was a young child with bouts of deep depression all the time. And as Rick would later say, he and Kay did everything they could, as you would do as a loving set of parents, to get their son Matthew help. To every psychologist, to every counselor, to every medical expert and therapist they could find. And when they couldn't hear from Matthew that morning, that sense of something wrong, they went to his house and his apartment, and they found it locked, and no one came to the door. And fearing the worst, the police were called, and the police came and opened the apartment door and confirmed their fears. Their son, Matthew, who they loved so much, who had read every page of the purpose-driven life, had taken his own life. And besides being the pastor of Saddleback Church, Rick is just well-known for all the work that he's done around the world. He's probably America's best-known pastor. Millions of people have been helped by his ministry. But that so floored him that he did not return to the pulpit for several months. It wasn't until the last week in July of that same year that he and Kay came forward and stood on the platform for the first time. And because he is so well known that it garnered media coverage from all over the United States, there were reporters there just waiting to see with bated breath what would Rick Warren say, his first words coming back in public after losing his own son. Well, Rick and Kay stood up before the congregation and certainly thanked them for their prayers and being with them and their love. But in trying to explain how his Christian faith helped him through that tragedy, Rick said this, Guys, I don't understand it all, but God knows what it's like to lose a son. God sent his son to die on a cross for our sins. And then he added this. He said, when you go through a difficult time, you automatically start to try and find an answer. If that's true, say amen. You're going through, why God? And then the harder question, why me, God? Why is this happening? He said, you try to start and find an answer, but explanations never comfort. You don't need explanations, he said. You need the presence of God. There was a Time Magazine reporter there that day by the name of Elizabeth Diaz. She wrote an article about this, and in her article for Time Magazine, she ended the article with these words. Then as the service closed, Pastor Rick joined the worship team in singing a favorite evangelical hymn, Blessed Be Your Name. He gives and takes away. Blessed be his name. He lifted his Bible high above his head and declared boldly to the God he serves, you give and take away. My heart chooses to say, Lord, blessed be your name. You give and take away. We need a big God. And the truth is we have one. And that God can be your God. If you're here today and you do not know Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, I want to encourage you today to trust a big God that loves you so much. He didn't make it hard. It's not complicated. You don't have to know a secret code to get his attention. But God gave up his son for your sins. And may I say this, your screw-ups. Everything that we've done wrong, Jesus took on the cross. And by just accepting what he did and praying, Lord Jesus, this is Frankie. This is me. Forgive me of my sins. I believe that you died on the cross for me. 
Come into my life and make me the person you want me to be and help me discover my purpose in life through you.